Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, hello. I'm sorry you sort of snuck up on me. Uh, it is December 2nd, just noting it since these days, each day brings us a little closer to the end of this horrific year. And uh, obviously with uh, a measure of light at the end of the tunnel, although the darkest part of the tunnel to be gotten through to get to it, um, it behooves us all to uh, mark those days as they go by, I think. December 2, 2020. I want to uh, tell you something that uh, was the biggest thing that happened in my life yesterday. And uh, it came unexpectedly uh, to me through my email. And it was a link to a documentary on YouTube. And the documentary was about Tom Sokolowski, who was such an incredible part of this program, whatever this is, uh, for over a year. I'm not good at time. Over a year. I don't know. And I... um, I had known that this documentary was in the works because uh, the gentleman who is doing it, was doing it, um, had contacted City Paper. I can't believe this. My voice was totally okay until I started the show. Um, Had contacted City Paper and had asked if he could use some of the video from the show. in which, you know, Tom obviously was speaking. And um, that is how we found out about the existence of the, of the documentary. I was certainly not expecting it to see it so soon after we had gotten that request. <clears throat> it is, um, oh, shoot. Listen, hang on just a minute. Pretend you don't hear this. <clears throat> Did that help? No. Okay. I know, hot water, honey. Um, Anyway, we've posted it on our Facebook page. Please take the time to watch it. It's a little over a half hour, I think. It's called One Singular Sensation. And it reminds us, well, it reminded me, <clears throat> that's so oh damn it I'm guys I'm sorry I really am sorry I don't know what to do you don't want to listen to me <laughs> um <clears throat> anyway I guess we have no choice <laughs> if I talk in a higher register it doesn't seem to happen so I'll talk try to talk up here a little bit okay so uh he uh geez I wonder what that's about that if I talk in a higher register, it doesn't happen. What's that about? 
Oh, never mind. Anyway, so it is um, a reminder to me, I think is what I was saying, that too often we take for granted the blessings in our lives, the in this case, the the um, the friendship um, of a of a man, and uh, spending an hour with him uh, once a week, and not really having a sense of his history, and then to see this documentary. And certainly the New York Times obituary on Tom uh, laid it out pretty clearly. He was a major figure in the art world. He was a major figure in the fight against AIDS. He was fearless. He was provocative. We got to know him just sort of as an old buddy, a pal who stopped by and often annoyed me. Hmm. I couldn't stop crying after the documentary. Part of it was a sense of loss and part of it was a sense of self-reproach of not having valued Tom as I should. And it seems I'm too old to have to learn that to not take for granted the people in our lives to not focus on little annoying aspects of their personalities, perhaps, but to focus on what they bring to us, in Tom's case, to a world, and to appreciate the people in our lives all these imperfect souls, some of whom make a mark, uh, leave a mark, a bigger print than most. And Tom was one. And um, I, I just hope you will not only watch this and enjoy it, but uh, pass it on, if you would. Because I think as many people as, as can should um, see this work. It's, it's wonderful. And, uh, well, okay. Um, you know, <clears throat> oh, hopper register, 
Um, I want to uh, share with you a story that I saw a few weeks ago, and it too made me cry. (laughs) But it made me cry again for the same kind of reason that I cried seeing the documentary on Tom. Because people can be so extraordinary. And too often, and certainly on this program, we spend an awful lot of time bemoaning the actions of people who are not good. The actions of selfish, power-hungry, cruel, abusive people. They make the news. And in our case, in the last four years, they have held the reins of power. And so we spend a lot of time in that sort of negative, sort of, in that negative, dark territory. And and I moan and groan about human nature and that I wish I hadn't seen so much of it. By the way, there's a funny quote in the Tom documentary, a friend of his saying that on a phone, I'm remembering it maybe incorrectly, but not Tom's rejoinder. (laughs) She was moaning and groaning to him about, you know, who knows, the state of the world, the state of her life. You know, she sounded like, you know, she sounded like uh, a lot of us sound a lot of the time. Oy, yay, 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 woe is me. Horrible, horrible, horrible. And she said, Tom cut through it all by said, hey, look, darling, you ain't down to your last can of tuna fish. <clears throat> Uh, right. <laughs> God bless her. So I, I want to share this story, which you might have seen as well. But it is a reminder that there are people who transcend the darkness, who refuse to dwell in it, give in to it, and who lead lives often of just quiet courage and dignity. And one such man lives in Brussels, Belgium. His name is Simon Granowski. And he became somebody who got some attention uh, during the pandemic because he would sit at his piano, throw the windows wide open, and play. He wasn't playing for himself. He was playing. He was sending the music out to his neighbors, all of whom were locked up in their homes. 
And so that every every day they learn to look forward to this incredible jazz that this 89-year-old man was sending out into the neighborhood. He had said when he first did it, I was afraid it's not normal to just open the window and play. But people started looking forward to it. People started leaving their homes masked to get closer to his house to hear it. So he filled his neighborhood with song. An American who's been living there for years and happened to live in the neighborhood said this, here was someone who was amplifying music to share with neighbors for no other reason than to make people feel good during a difficult time. An unsolicited gift. He taught himself how to play the piano to honor his sister, his older sister, who had been apparently an extraordinary, gifted pianist. But she died in Auschwitz at the age of 19. And after he survived the Holocaust, he vowed to learn to play for her. How he survived is another story. He made his break on April 19th of 1943. He was 11 years old and he jumped out of a speeding train headed for Auschwitz. His mother was on the train and she's the one who told him, jump. He jumped because she told him to, but he thought she was jumping too. But she did not. Strangely, the train he jumped from uh, actually was of the, God knows, tens of thousands of such trains filled with terrified human beings who were going to their slaughter. This train actually was known, the train he jumped off. It was called Convoy 20. And it was known because on its way to Auschwitz, it was it was attacked by three obviously extraordinarily courageous resistance fighters. I don't know what happened to them. But because of the attack, the train ended up 
stopping, slowing, and then stopping. And in the commotion, dozens of people on that train got out, managed to get out and escape into the countryside. But then the train started accelerating again and he was still on it. And that's when his mom thought, he's gotta get off. And that's when she told him to jump. He was 11 years old. He survived, spent close to two years hiding in attics of some courageous Catholic families. After the war, he managed to find his father, the only other family member who had survived, but his father quickly died. He always said it was a broken heart, leaving Samuel Gronowski, who was now, what, 14, an orphan. He... um. He went back to his home. And amazingly, it had not been taken over by some opportunistic person thinking, here's a nice Jewish home, let's take this one. And so he moved in, back into it, 14 years old. He took in lodgers so he could live and so he could make money to go to school. And by the time this orphaned kid was 23 years old, he had managed to secure a PhD in law. And he learned to play the piano. And he got married. And for six decades, he rarely ever mentioned his parents, his sister, the day he jumped off the train. He said, I did not talk about it because I felt guilty. Who are they? Why are they dead? Why am I alive? But in 2002, people who knew bits of his story said, you know, you do need to tell it. Because there was an upswing of nationalistic fervor in parts of Europe. And they felt that people like him needed to tell their stories and they swayed him. And so he started to bear witness. And he wrote a book. And he went to speak to children in schools. His book was called The Child of the 20th Convoy. And 
in Belgium, that book got some attention and made him, you know, somebody who was somewhat known. And so he would give lectures. After one of the lectures, a student contacted him and said that he knew a man named Conrad Tennell, who was the same age as Sam Gronowski, Simon Gronowski, and who bore extraordinary guilt himself. Not the guilt of a survivor, but the guilt of having been born into a Nazi family. In fact, his brother had been a guard at the very camp where Simon Gronowski and his mother had been held before they were stuck on that cattle car. And this man had wanted to know if Mr. Gronowski would be willing to just meet him, talk to him. And of course, Simon Gronowski said yes. And now these two men, because that was eight years ago, still meet constantly. They are true friends. In fact, Gronowski says, Conrad is more than a friend, he is my brother. And they both wrote a book together called Finally Liberated. And they gave lectures together. And when Conrad Tennell's older brother, who had been the guard in the camp where Simon Gronowski had been held as a child, was on his deathbed, he begged to have Mr. Gronowski come to him. And Gronowski said, I took him in my arms and I forgave him. This forgiveness was a relief for him, but it was an even bigger relief for me. You know, most of us are incapable of that, despite hearing that it lifts a burden from our hearts, that kind of forgiveness. Beyond playing the piano for his neighbors, he also wrote a little piece for the local newspaper to tell everybody who was feeling so down and so, you know, stuck in this pandemic. And he put things in perspective <laughs> as only somebody who'd lived his life could. And so in this column, he told his fellow Belgians, he wrote this in late March, currently reduced to forced idleness, conducive to reflection. My thinking wanders and rejoins the confinements that I suffered 75 years ago. 
from 1942 to 1944 when I was 10, 11, and 12 years old. Today, we can stay with our families. We can keep in touch. We can do our shopping, stock up on provisions. We can read the newspapers and watch television. But then, we lived in terror. We lacked everything. We were cold, hungry, and our families were separated, dislocated, and murdered. That sort of puts things in perspective. Sort of like Tom Sokolowski saying, hey! You're not down to your last can of tuna. So I just wanted to tell you about this 89-year-old man, Simon Gronowski. I'm looking at a picture of him. He looks fantastic. (laughs) He looks like he's got a lot of life left in him. And You can tell he does because here's another quote from the article. I want to play with this band from New Orleans. They're called Tuba Skinny. They are great. There is a human being. An amazing human being. God bless him. Okay. So I wanted to share that with you. Um, Hang on here. I got to remember about that going into my upper register, don't I? Fascinating. And and it's, you know, something wonderful for you, too. <laughs> uh, so. So. Barbara writes, thank you for the heads up about the documentary on Tom. He was so enjoyable on your show. I always loved your interactions and liked his glasses and can hear his voice when I think about those shows. And of course, I love the Warhol. I remember the day it opened, if I remember correctly, I was at the children's festival with my eight-year-old and friends with their kids and the line to get in was around the block. But like so many things, makes me sad and nostalgic for the days of new beginnings instead of the sadness and feelings we are experiencing during this pandemic. And then Barbara wonders why I hadn't talked about this. It's interesting, Barbara, we're on the same wavelength. I intended to talk about this today. So after all this talk and remembrance of good human beings in this world, 
I have to return us, unfortunately, uh, to giving what is, God, why can't I think of the word? Bearing witness, thank you, that we have to bear witness to what is happening in our country, in our name, by virtue of the man who was elected president of these United States four years ago. And although we want to turn our backs, we cannot. I don't know how many of you know that um, Trump's Justice Department, under the loathsome Bill Barr, has essentially gone on a killing spree. Now, I'm not even talking about the killing spree of COVID of not having any true national policy that could have saved, that would have saved tens of thousands of lives. I'm talking about the Justice Department executing people. In our name, eight people have been put to death in less than five months. Five more executions are planned before Trump leaves. And those kinds of numbers understand that they will then have put to death 13 human beings. And just so you get a sense of how outrageous that is, in the last 50 years, the federal government has killed, executed only three people. Can you imagine you have only a little time left with this power that comes with the presidency. And you use it killing people. On top of that, executions, federal executions, while rare, are totally rare during a transition period. They are totally rare to be carried out by a president who has been voted out of office. In fact, the last time a lame duck president had someone executed was 100 years ago. And as if that were not enough. The Justice Department is now telling states 
that if they want to kill people, they do not have to use lethal injection. They can do whatever they want to kill the person. They can use a firing squad. They can electrocute them. They can hang them. Can you imagine that these are the things that this administration in its last hours seeks to rush to get done? And remember, these are Republicans. The party that wraps itself in this mantle of being pro-life. And as if that weren't enough, sure, they're killing people. Then you might not have noticed that in his last few weeks in office, Trump is relaxing rules on killing birds. He might have pardoned those turkeys, but he is saying, you want to kill songbirds? Go ahead. There has been a century-old law which makes it illegal to pursue, hunt, take for capture migratory birds without a permit. This administration, this ugly, cruel, criminal administration is racing to lock in a series of regulatory changes before Biden takes office that will reinterpret that 100-year-old law, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which we were wise enough to in 1918 to pass. But in the cruel year of 2020, under the leadership of Donald J. Trump, that law will be gutted. And you know why? So that chemical companies, oil companies, would not have to pay a penalty if their negligence killed a bird. So the, the way it'll work now is if, if the BP Deepwater Horizon explosion back in 2010 were to happen today, it killed people, it killed untold wildlife, thousands of birds. They would not be held liable at all. At least back then, they had to pay $100 million, which probably is low to what it should have been, to fund the restoration of the wetlands that they destroyed and the life destroyed. So I have wanted to share with you uh, that. 
because we need to bear witness. Um, and also, as if we didn't know how dangerous in every respect this administration is, there is this making the rounds. I'm not sure who the author is. I do know uh, the now pardoned General Flynn, the perjurer, the, the uh, Russia lover, is circulating it. And it is um, an attempt to get Trump to truly play hardball. Here is what it says. When the legislators, courts, and Congress fail to do their duty under the 12th Amendment, you must be ready, Mr. President, to immediately declare a limited form of martial law to temporarily suspend the Constitution and civilian control of these federal elections for the sole purpose of having the military oversee a revote. Now, I'm going to assume that maybe uh, cooler heads fail, but who knows. This, by the way, December 2nd, happens to be the day that 66 years ago, another despotic Republican, hate monger, fear monger, Senator Joseph McCarthy, was condemned by the U.S. Senate. It was a long, too long a time in coming. But as always, when these egregious violations of our system occur, it's the Republicans' purpose. And it's the Republicans being quiet and not condemning them, just as now. Throughout the McCarthy era, the Republicans stayed mute. Which is why whenever a Republican speaks up, it is so extraordinarily refreshing. And now you have this Republican in Georgia, not the Secretary of State, also a Republican who is getting death threats now for doing his job, for putting country over party, but someone who works under him, who's high ranking, and he's got the guy who sort of manages the apparatus of the elections in Georgia. And maybe you saw this press conference he gave yesterday. He was barely under control. 
he was so enraged. His name is Gabriel Sterling. And again, this is a conservative Republican. And among many things he said, it has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. And what he's talking about are the death threats, the crowd showing up around these people's homes, the noose that was left with a 20-year-old who was simply bringing ballots to some to, to the people he was supposed to bring them to. There was a noose hanging for him and a note that said he should be hung for treason. As you know, one of the Trump campaign lawyers, this Joe DeGeneva, actually said the other night that Chris Krebs, the former federal cybersecurity official, whose work helped to maintain the integrity of this election, despite the fact that he had been put in that position by Donald Trump. Every once in a while, Trump goofed and put an honorable and capable human being in a job. In such an instance was Chris Krebs. Trump's lawyer, DeGeneva, said the other day that he should be put up against a wall and shot. This Georgian election official, this Republican, almost in tears, said, Mr. President, stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone is going to get hurt. Someone is going to get shot. Someone is going to get killed. And what's Trump doing? Well, he sure ain't listening to that. No, he's now looking into preemptive pardons for his kids, for Giuliani, and for probably half of his administration. Preemptive pardons. That means he's going to pardon people before they've ever been charged with anything. So I guess they can go out and kill people after a preemptive pardon and he's their pardoned. By the way, I want you to know this is different than what Gerald Ford did with Nixon. No president has ever tried to grant someone a pardon for crimes they have not yet committed, essentially a get out of jail free card. And most legal experts would say it is unlikely to hold, can't do it. But he can pardon them, as Gerald Ford did to Nixon, for all of the actions taken while they were in the service of the nation. And I say that with dripping sarcasm.
because of course what they were doing was not serving the nation but totally being self serving grifters all Jimmy Carter pardoned thousands of Americans who had illegally avoided the draft in Vietnam. A lot of people were able to come home from and hiding and other nations. Heck, the first president, George Washington, pardoned a bunch of folks over here in western Pennsylvania who had taken part in the Whiskey Rebellion. But no president, no president has granted pardons for crimes that have not even been committed. Hmm. By the way, a funny thing, uh, uh, Connie Schultz, who happens to be the married to uh, Senator Sh- uh, Sherrod Brown, uh, did... <laughs> Post this is she's a funny woman and a novelist, um, a journalist and a yeah she's a writer. Anyway, she tweeted uh, today, "I'm so proud of our grown children for many reasons, but this week it's because not one of them is in need of a presidential pardon." Thanks, kids. Love you. <laughs> oh, there, there. You uh, have it. Uh, (laughs) Ed uh, writes, speaking of outrageous, yeah. Have you caught any of the news about the fact that all these hate groups, all these white nationalist groups, all these racist, anti-Semitic, horrible groups, um, are all designated as charities and receive federal tax benefits. Yeah, I did see that. I saw it. That means you can give. That means, you know, you can give them money and then deduct it from yours. It doesn't just help them. It helps all the haters who want to fund these groups. It's despicable. At some point, you know, there's so much that has been corrupted in our nation. And there's no way that a Joe Biden administration in 20 years could fix it all. But this is something that needs to be fixed, and we know that. We've seen it here in Pittsburgh with all the charities like UPMC that give not a penny, that take up all this land and this space. Granted, yes, they employ a lot of people and they pay a lot of them shit wages too. But they're a charity? Give me an effing break. I think we should all be able to call ourselves charities. Seems like there's nothing... That sort of prevents you. Why don't you get a group together, form some kind of a thing, call yourself a charity, put in to have your charitable status, and go for it. Let's all just do it. And do it by neighborhoods. Incredible. 
And are you ready for more corruption? <laughs> um, the Washington Post has a report out today. They went to uh, to legal means, filed a uh, Freedom of Information Act to get to uh, this uh, the information they needed. But you know that paycheck protection program that the Trump administration put into effect in the early days of uh, the pandemic. It was supposed to bail out, help keep afloat the country's small businesses. Well, the Washington Post got hold of the data. Who got what? And half of the money, and what we're talking about is $522 billion. Hundreds of billions of those dollars went to just 5% of the recipients. Stop and think about it. We'll get our little pie chart out. This is how Republicans operate. They took half the pie and gave it to just a little sliver of businesses that were said to be in need of it. And guess what those businesses were? Mm -hmm. They weren't small businesses. They were big businesses, the guys that the Republicans always give the most to. Large chains, big banks, Boston Market, law firms, for God's sakes, high-level, rich law firms, Churches, supposedly businesses with up to 500 employees were eligible, <laughs> but they gave it to ones with thousands and thousands of employees. They gave mo half of it to 5%. And the other 95% of people who were begging for please help me. They got the other half of the pie. So about 600 large companies received the maximum amount allowed under the program. These 600 large companies each got 10 million dollars that we were told was going to the small businesses in our communities. And when small businesses did get something, it was almost always less than $150,000 as opposed to 10 million. Uh, 
And now we've got these plans that they're trying to add another $908 billion to that program. I don't think they should. Who's going who, who's gonna to oversee where that goes? The same connected, big, already rich companies will be first in line again. We live in a corrupt nation. There's hardly any place you can look that's not corrupted. And after four years of the kleptocracy of Donald Trump and his ilk, I doubt that there's any place in the federal government that has not been corrupted. The good thing is, there are good people still in these institutions. And we have got to pray that we are given enough time. And that would mean four years of Biden, four years of whoever comes next, Harris, or eight years of Biden, I can't imagine that, but whatever. We have got to make sure that we move forward as much as we possibly can. Yesterday, uh, Father Joseph sent me some quotes from Eric Hoffer, for those of you who might know the name and are having trouble placing him, he was he was a philosopher, essentially. Um, and Eric Hoffer quotes, there's like probably 700 million of them. Brilliant man, um, working class guy, um, longshoreman, and uh, brilliant. And in a book he wrote called The True Believer, Father Joseph sent this, I'm sure, because we were talking yesterday about how do, you know, how do Trump's minions, how do they, how do they manage to believe the the insane, just insane lies they're told? How is that possible? And why do they have so enraged and hate? And one of the quotes that I love really is, it is startling to realize how much unbelief is necessary to make belief possible. call that sort of like leap of faith. He also said this, hatred is the most accessible and comprehensive of all the agents. Mass movements can rise and spread without belief in a God, but never 
without belief in a devil. And obviously that devil can take many forms. The mass movement that was created by Donald Trump, the devil is, well, you. It's black people. It's anybody who does not conform to their idea of who a real American is. So that pretty much makes it white, heterosexual, conservative Christian. And everybody else, that'd be the devil. Here's another interesting one. What a brilliant man he was. Propaganda, he writes, serves more to justify ourselves than to convince others. And the more reason we have to feel guilty, the more fervent our propaganda. All you got to do is look at Trump's tweets to see the validity of, of that. Oh, man. Um, hang on. What I got here? Well, I think that's it. So, guys, I hope you will make an effort. It doesn't listen to effort. You just go to my Facebook page or go to YouTube and look for the Tom Sokolowski documentary. It's wonderful. A lot of us have time on our hands and wondering what we should do with ourselves. And there's there's 30 minutes uh, taken up with getting to know a little bit better a wonderful man who spent a lot of time with us. So I really do hope you will do that. And I, I also know that, of, uh, of course, Many of you will be watching a professional football game today, uh, which is uh, somewhat unusual. Um, but I, in reading the New York Times sports section today, I found out it's not that unusual, especially not for Pittsburgh. It says here that when Pittsburgh's football team was known as the Pirates, uh, and they began play in 1933. Well, you can't have a football game without beer, right? They knew that even then. And so, because of the blue laws in Pennsylvania, where you couldn't have any liquor, any beer, anything on a Sunday, these games could not be played on a Sunday. So the Pittsburgh football team, the Pirates, held their games on Wednesdays. The first four games in Steelers history were played on Wednesday, just so you know. And then, of course, uh, lobbyists went to work on the legislature, mostly from the uh, foot, uh, baseball side, and they got that lifted, and then games went to Sundays, 
But Pittsburgh did not abandon Wednesdays entirely, says here. The team appeared in 10 of the NFL's 13 Wednesday games. So Wednesday games, that's what we do, it turns out. Let me just get two of you in here before I say adieu. Doug writes, the White House is the most courteous place to work now because everyone walks around and says, pardon me. Ah. Ah. <laughs> he says, I don't take it. He got that from Twitter, but that's wonderful, sir. It's so polite in there. Pardon me. Pardon me. Chuck writes, currently Trump's Twitter account has 88 million followers, and he will never stop with the dog whistles. He will leave office with a big chip on his shoulder, and those who supposedly were disloyal to him will suffer his tweets and revenge until he dies. And every step that Biden takes will earn a dozen tweets from Trump. Let's hope even the media ignore him. I think that's too much to hope, as Chuck does too. Yeah, the media. See, all it takes is most media can decide we're not paying attention. But then one will say, oh, wow, that's a good, this will get eyeballs, and they'll do it, and then the others fall in line. I cannot imagine media having the control, the self-control, and the resolve to not give him a lot of attention. All right, you guys. Thank you very much. Please stay safe. Please. Thank you. See you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.